Hello and welcome to the show. First off, we lost Andre Williams this week at the age of 82. I believe the first time I saw him perform was in 2006 at a venue called The Knockout in San Francisco. It was the sexiest show I ever saw. Later, I got to interview him for Drinks with Tony, and I'm going nuts. I cannot find the interview at the moment, and the minute I do, as I go through hundreds of files, I will post it on the website. Uh, but here is his ID for the show. Hi, this is Andre Williams, and I enjoy Drinks with Tony, and I hope you do too. Oh, Andre Williams, rest in power, man. If you don't know his music or the story of Andre Williams, look him up. He is just utterly fascinating. And during our interview, I had to ask him a question, and it dealt with his conversion to Judaism in 2001. It was, he was in his 60s, and he converted for a woman. To convert, he had to get circumcised. So I had to ask the poignant question on everyone's mind, sex. Is it better circumcised or uncircumcised? Andre Williams said circumcised. And I thanked my parents instantly for cutting off that foul foreskin. Hello, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. This is Mitchell S. Jackson, author of Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Mitchell S. Jackson. His books are The Residue Years, and currently, this one just came out, Survival Math, Notes on an All-American Family. Mitchell, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. This L.A. sunshine is unbelievable. I, we, I, I'm glad. Well, you came down just when the cold stopped. Yeah, yeah. I saw some people posting about the rain a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, it looks like my hometown, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, but uh, so you you left? Were you, so you left Oregon? You left Port yeah. <laughs> Oregon, Portland. Yeah. Yeah. And this is unedited, and this is why because I make the silly mistakes. But um. And, and you didn't bring the rain. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I, I was just walking around like, wow, what would it be like to have this kind of sunshine all the time? I don't even know if I would know what to do with myself. Really? Yeah. Um, see, because sometimes it gets too much for me where I'm like, I need some weather. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you can always get on a plane for that, but I feel like my spirits might lift if I saw sunshine every day but then i think too like what does it do to your work ethic oh yeah well i have a dark air-conditioned studio so my work ethic is okay (laughs) yeah i think i would need that i would need that you know sometimes the heat keeps you inside so yeah yeah oh yeah yeah summertime yeah for sure so uh you grew up in portland yeah and uh, as as your memoir uh Yeah, both both the books are uh, really a, a lot about my kind of growing up in Portland, and not just uh, Portland at large, but like a really small community in Portland, uh, Northeast Portland. Some of us call it the NEP, um, and uh, which I think I mean some people point out to me now, which I didn't kind of know when I was young, is that it's like not kind of on the 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 the, the, the um, national consciousness this this part of uh, Portland or at least is the way that I portray it so 
uh, now it feels like even um, more rare <laughs> that I'm from that place. Yeah, it's um, well, it's interesting because I mean I'm kind of a buffoon in my bubble and lived in San Francisco and Los Angeles, and. You know, I think Portland, I just think uh, hipsters and strippers, right? And then all of a sudden you got you have this inner city, you have the, your culture growing up and the, all the intensity of it, which just blows my mind. I have to ask you, when did you, and then we'll, I'm going to jump all over the place, and then, but, we'll keep, but and we'll keep it jumped all over the place. But when did you decide that you were going to become a writer? Because documenting that Portland experience is really important. And at what point did you say, wait a second, I have a story to tell how I'm now I need to learn how to craft. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting because at no point while I was observing or kind of living out the, the main material for what was the residue years and later survival math, did I imagine that I was going to write about it? So there was like no note keeping. There was not like a moment that I said, oh, this one day would become, you know, a novel or anything. I actually didn't even consider writing seriously until I was in prison uh, for selling drugs. And I was towards the end of my sentence and wanted to uh, kind of reacclimate myself to being studious. Uh, So I just kind of started writing it out of, uh, you know, wanting to prepare for school. Um, And then also... Uh, I had this idea because I was listening to the guys in prison like, oh, yeah, my life story would be interesting. Um, but then I, I didn't know what genre to write in uh, or even what genres were possible for me to write in. And so I chose fiction because I thought that if I wrote it as nonfiction that I could maybe get some people in trouble. And I, I was very hesitant to do that. So I started fiction. But even then, I didn't consider myself a writer. It was just I want to write this one story. Uh, the kind of you're going to be a writer didn't happen until many years later, maybe even a decade after that. Wow. Yeah. And um, what year? What year was that when you started uh, documenting it? Um, and then it, it's so crazy how how long it takes when yeah. you think, wait, I got a story that could probably be a book, yeah. and then you th- and then you're like, and it'll come out next year, and yeah. the next thing you know, like. <laughs> yeah. Well. The, it was 1998 when I, when I wrote kind of the first lines when I was incarcerated. I got out in the summer of 98, and uh, I'm, I kind of put it away for a little while. I went back to school. I got an undergraduate degree. I started working in a, a news station, and then... Um, oh, that, that's why you, you looked at my gear and knew... Oh, you're like, oh, that's the Zoom. Oh, wait, then And I'm like, okay, you've done some uh, journalism. Yeah, I mean, I have a Zoom at home, too, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so... Uh, I got out in 98. I mean, I, went, I started my first graduate st- school program in uh, 2000. Yeah. And I was at Portland State University. Yeah. Still just really wanting to work on this one story. And that's really all I ever kind of handed in for submissions. I was just very focused on making a novel. Yeah. Uh, but I knew it was a two-year program. And because I had no writing experience prior to that, I like, I'm not going to be ready to, to, to publish a novel. I was really like conscious that my story was kind of, uh, it had been in the public. Uh, and so I was like, I'm going to have to learn how to write, not just be able to tell a story because I didn't want to be dismissed as someone who just told a kind of hard knock life story. So that was really important for me to kind of learn the craft of what I was doing. And because of that, I knew I wouldn't be ready after two years. So I applied to go to NYU and that's how I ended up in New York. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. 
So what was there a moment when you were in other? So I mean, so the the, the parts of the book that I read, man, it's it's intense. I, it, I'm real I, getting into that life of. I mean, there's here's my point of view, and tell me it's just way off. And then the, <laughs> but it's just like there is no alternative when you when you're growing up, and there's just drugs, and there's abusive. Parent, you know, there's abusive, you know, the, like the uh, the sequence on the pops, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, yeah, and, and I'm jumping all over the place. All this stuff needs to go way in depth, but it's really interesting how you said you weren't thinking of even writing when you were in it. I don't think, but probably, tell me if I'm wrong, but probably because there is no other life. You're just, you're just, it's kind of what you're growing up. That this is like, is there an alternative? Can you see it? Or it, I don't. I grew up in a weird cult, so I didn't think there was any alternatives when I grew up. So that's why I kind of, that's how I experience it. Okay. Um. <laughs> and, and remember all of that and answer every question. No, I'm, I'm messing. No, I think I have them too. Uh, you know, I, I think um, I well, I think what now I realize what allowed me to be a writer later is my sense of observation. So I was always paying attention and I was always asking the questions about like why this person was this way or like how I would react in a certain situation if I were that person. So I was always asking questions and I was always observant. I just never, I think because there was no models of writing, right? Like there were models of other kind of behaviors and other kind of uh, careers and identities, but there was no model for me to be a writer. My parents weren't readers there were no books in the house my grandparents just read the bible you know so like uh i think the 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 older that i got the more i started to see more possibilities and it wasn't that um you know i think it wasn't like it was inexorable when i was young it was just it seemed like there was not enough other kind of models for me so i don't want to say like I didn't have another option because there were guys who grew up in my same kind of circumstances who lived different lives. They didn't go to prison. Their moms weren't on drugs. They, you know, might have had parent, both parents in the house. So it wasn't just like this is the only thing it could be, but I would have had to notice that. And it was hard for me to see outside of my circumstances in. It's kind of the, it's kind of the, easy, the easy tribe of sorts. To- yeah. Yeah, I mean, I grew up Jehovah's Witness, so I was like, I, and then it took years of therapy to get out of that. So, <laughs> and then I wrote about it, and when and when I did, and when I when when I was doing that, I was, I did it as a novel too. I, I got to ask you about going from novel to memoir because that's huge to me. But um, I felt like I had to represent, I had to represent the whole, all aspects of it. Like I had a responsibility almost when I was getting the final drafts. I don't know, it, and not just for me, but to everyone that. Would, would come out of the Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the kind of first um, charges of a writer is that you paint people as human beings, right? So, I mean, you can't just go in looking for faults in someone. My, I, my old mentor is this guy named Gordon Lish, and he used to say, uh, never elevate yourself above the other in your work. And I really, and that's to me, like, that's a tenet that I can not forsake it's like if i can find a fault in someone else like i have to be able to turn that same kind of critical eye back on myself um and i think that's also means because i offer myself grace in moments when i've made mistakes i also have to offer that to the people that i'm writing about 
I, this, okay, this, I, like, I find someone in my life and I'm like, that person's a piece of shit. I'm gonna, they are the antagonist of my next novel. Yeah. And I write them and I write them and then I realize all those qualities are me. I, that freaks me out. I, I don't like wow, that. Wow, wow, yeah, that would be uh, Cause disconcerting, cause I, yeah. Because what I'm doing is I'm just taking their piece, but then I bring it in, and it's just like, I have, wait, I'm a prick, too, in that situation. Yeah, 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 I mean, uh, yeah, the more you write about the other, right, the more you're finding about yourself, yeah. and the way that you portray the other is a reflection of how you view yourself, right? So we're really always writing, in some form, autobiography. Yeah. And that's scary as shit. <laughs> Ain't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's uh, uh, one of my favorite James Baldwin's quotes. Is, uh, it's from an essay called If Black English Isn't a Language, Then Tell Me What Is. And he says, uh, to open your mouth is to put your business in the streets. You've confessed, like, your mother, your parents, your education, everything, the moment that you begin to speak. That makes a lot of sense. Wow. <laughs> I'm applying it to all these other people, and I know I gotta apply it to me. <laughs> yes. So when you so when you start off on your on uh, residue years, I'm like okay, because I get nervous when I tape, so I forget. <laughs> but when you start when you do when you do it through the point of view of fiction, and then you move toward memoir, what was was there an emotional element that where it hit kind of harder when you were in memoir when you're in when you were writing about the, the you know these these scenes and these real people I, I, what, what's the emotional like almost the emo, I feel like there would be an emotional toll to, that's taken well there was great emotional toll in um, really in writing both of them but the, the but in fiction I had cover you know so like in and, and also if it was too too raw I could just fictionalize it, you know? Like, I could get away from it. But in memoir, you could not get away from it. And also, I think in memoir, I implicated a lot more people. So while the residue years was about my mother and my immediate family, so my two brothers and me and my mother, and that was really the focus of that novel. Um, survival math is about my basically my entire family as I know it, right? So it's aunts, it's uncles, it's my grandparents, it's my great-grandparents, and so there was a responsibility again to like treat them fair, but also to critique them. But then, because they're not artists, you know, they don't necessarily have that same mandate in their life that like a person has to be critical of them, right? So then it's also like explaining to them like, I wanna treat you fair, I wanna be critical, I'm doing this out of love, and I also have a fidelity to what I set out to do, which is like write this thing. But uh, a lot of people have been calling it a memoir. The other thing that um, I think is important is that I always imagine it as an essay collection. Because I think of the what people might think of as chapters as like discrete explorations of an idea. Not discrete, of explorations of an idea. So there are, to me, 12 ideas, at least 12 kind of uh, theses in each of those essays. And I think... I can understand why people say memoir because they're all also grounded in a like, personal experience. So I'll, I usually get in with like an anecdote or a vignette and I'll get out. And there's a fair amount of narrative throughout the essays, but they're really all about an idea. Um, so uh, that was one of the reasons why I moved from fiction to nonfiction was because I thought the essay was the form that was most apt to force a reader to kind of reckon with the way that I think on the page. And that was really important to me because I felt like 
some of the kind of critique of the residue years was that I just had a, an interesting story and that, you know, that they like kind of discounted like the craft work. And remember, I had spent all those years learning how to write and then for someone to say like, oh, this is a great story. It's like a story of struggle and overcoming story, which it is. But then it's like, but wait a second. Did you know that like I spent two weeks writing that single sentence or that I actually learned how to craft this novel or that I put the beginning and the end for a reason? You know, like so all those things kind of got dismissed in favor of like, oh, this is just a good story. I, I find that the, uh, the what, like especially when I speak to authors where it's just like, man, this was such an easy read. Man, I just blew through this. Those are the hardest ones to write. Those are the ones that they sat there and labored over for three years to get every single word right so the reader would think, oh, yeah, that way ain't nothing but a thing. I could do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that is the, uh, maybe that's like the kind of, ultimate success of a writer is to take the really complicated thing and make it look easy. Yeah. Yeah. And that the reader experiences as such. But I think with my particular story, we're also talking about like cultural and racial expectations about what a writer can do yeah. and the way that we describe work by people of color. So I, I'm, I'm always trying to push against that. Yeah. To push against it in a way where... Um where what the expectations I guess is what is that what yeah so it's like like if we look at the way if you were to go look at reviews I mean you, you said you used to work at the San Francisco Chronicle oh, right I used to yeah so like well, if we're oh you didn't okay uh, I, I can't be a, I suck as re, I suck at reviewing I never want to say that that didn't work for me when someone took seven years to work on something I'm not that guy yeah yeah I, I can see that's that's tough I, I think I've reviewed books and I always try to do it with charity you know yeah, like yeah, yeah. knowing that this took years and years and years likely of someone's life um, but I, and divorces and mental breakdowns right. yeah exactly and then that they didn't make anything for it likely you know there's all those things and you just want to like tear into them like yeah um, I think like some of the language that I see commonly used in ter terms okay I'll give you a, a good uh, example so I was going to read at an institution a few weeks ago and um, I happened to notice the the bios of um the bios of, of the writers that were coming to the to read in the same time frame as me. And so one of them was a, uh, a uh, woman who was a translated, a, a translation poet. And so it was like such and such is a translation poet. She's translated this and that. She won this award. She's great. No, I didn't say she's great, but that's what it said, right? And then the, 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 there was a, a, a white um, poet and they were like, such and such is the, one of the most renowned lyric poets in America, and he's won this award and that award, yeah. right? And then my said, Mitchell Jackson grew up in a crack out of neighborhood, went to prison, and, so, and then it, like three, four sentences down, it was like, oh, he wrote a novel, and he won some awards. And I was like, wow. In the context of all of those other bios it was like how did you get to that from me um, so I did a little research and it turns out that some of that uh, copy was actually uh, had its genesis in copy that was used to describe my first novel yeah but but even so I was like how could a person who wrote all three of those bios right like read hers then read the other guys and then say hey I'm gonna run with the 
you know, Mitchell Jackson grew up poor and went to prison and do that. So to me, I'm like fighting against that at every turn. Because they, it's like they, they want to front load, the, they want to front load the experience because they think that's yeah. might what sell, and then yeah. then you have a book. It's like that's that's the one thing, and when it should be the other way around. Right. Well, I mean, if they had to put like such and such as a translated poet from this place, her parents got divorced when she was six, and then this guy, you know, was a former alcoholic, and then this, I'd have been like, okay, fair game. But they didn't do that, you know? So then I have to ask, like, well, why me? You know, what is it about me? And if you just put our CVs up, like, I have just as a strong CV as the other two people that were reading. So it's not like they didn't have anything to say. Yeah. All right. I'm in. I want, actually, all of I want everyone's, like, life crises yeah. front-loaded now to buy us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then it's like, oh, yeah. And then, then you know, they also wrote a book. Yeah, yeah. they got a Pulitzer. Yeah. <laughs> Man Booker winner, whatever. But you know, the guy was the guy was poor. He smoked way too much pot. He was a, he was a gamer. Yeah, there we go. Exactly. If we're doing it like that, let's be consistent. I I think that would make reading so much more. I would go to more readings if I saw the problems of all the readers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's a weird thing, man. Because I maybe it's um. Maybe I mean I don't I don't want to justify it anyway, but maybe it's just so foreign to some people that they go wow and they want to front load it, I, and that's and that's also you're like well thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think also too though we have to look at like where that was. That was an institution, right? So it's like that's not even necessarily the audience you're speaking to, you know? Like you don't have to say that about me to get someone in. Like if we were like, I can see if I were going to speak like at a criminal justice forum or, you know, I was going to like a juvenile facility or something and you said that about me because you wanted to like connect me to to the audience. But like if I'm going to an institution to talk about writing and speak to an MFA program, like what does it matter that I went to prison? I mean, to it's almost to the point of... Um yeah, I guess, yeah, that would make sense because I would really hate it if someone said, "Oh, and by the way, we went through his pornography, uh, and he he's really into lesbians." And you know, exactly. It's it's yeah. Oh, it's all all this all this like drives me nuts. I, I it's a good fight, you know. You know, you just I mean, it's not like you're gonna change the world, but I do think you know, pointing it out and not letting it. If you have the power, like I think also these are things that I didn't even, I wasn't so, so much aware of them uh, when I was coming out with Residue. And also because the story was autobiographical and, and those elements were true about myself, like I kind of allowed things to, to, to happen or to be said that I probably was a little uncomfortable with, but I'm like, well, I wrote about it and this is the way that they're framing it. But now coming back, I'm like, well, you all have such more, much more to draw from, and then also I have more power over what, over how I'm portrayed in the world, and also I think like I've done enough things that there's more to say about me than you know. We're talking about like 25 years ago now, so um, I think it's just important for people who have the the, the, the power to, to speak up when they can. Not everyone can, right? Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Um, and the, the, there's also kind of the, I mean, there is kind of a redemption part of it because you, had, you got incarcerated. And, and um, at what point, even before the, before, like when you went to prison, did it's, I mean, because prisons, I, from, from what I know from my friends and my cousin was in Quentin, um, prison's hard. So what is it 
Wait, was it but was it in prison where you went? Wait, I have to I have to find like a way to shift my life, or was it before that? Or um, I don't think it was not in prison, and it was not before prison. It was well after. Oh wow! Yeah, I mean, maybe that's misleading. When I left, I told myself I would never go back, and so that helped guide my decision making process. Like I could have gone back and found some, my old connect was still working and got whatever I was getting and, and got back going. But I was like, that's not, that's not a risk I want to take, which is not to say that like I was condemning that kind of life. It was just like, that's not what I want for myself. I know where this ends up. Um, and so then it, it, it became a struggle, right? For me to kind of pay my bills and to kind of maintain a sense of uh, uh, like credibility out in the world. Um, but all the while, I was like, man, I can't go back. And luckily, I was in school, and so that really helped like, give me a sense of purpose and identity. Because if I didn't have that, it would have been like, much easier to kind of fall back into that life. And, I, and something that intrigues me about um, that and uh, certain experiences I have like, you know, in my past, but this is, not, this is, your, this is you're the guest, not me. <laughs> but um, but um, when my cousin got out of San Quentin, he was more scared of how his life felt easier inside than outside and that there was a he he missed the routine and it blew my mind when he told me that experience and I don't know if that's part of it because when you're I mean I've been in LA five years right I feel like an Angelino now so you know it's just like that's a normal thing so if you're somewhere for a certain amount of time with a certain amount of people that's normal. I think I would have panic attacks if I was incarcerated and then came out and had the world open to me. And I'd be like, I want the routine back. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm spitballing here like I'm in a TV writer's room and I'm not talking to you. I should be. <laughs> no, you know, I think I, I have often thought about that. I don't think that I spent enough. I know that I didn't spend enough time to develop, to, to normalize prison okay. for myself. So I think that that I want, I used to say, and I guess to a certain extent, I still believe this, that like that happens when you have over five years, okay. right? So when you have like a shorter sentence, it's like, you're, I think you're less likely to kind of normalize that. But if you get into 10 years, 12 years, like that routine, like when you see seasons and seasons come back and you can remember what you were doing, you know, the previous Christmas or the previous Thanksgiving, I think then that becomes normal. And the other thing you start to do is see people leave and come back so I only saw that a little bit but like if you stay long enough you'll see a guy say all the things he wants to do out in the world how he's maybe never coming back go and then come right back while you're still there and that to me kind of it, it it's like it's hard on your psyche because you like imagine like you're hopeful you, you I mean okay me I was hopeful that when I when I saw someone leave I wouldn't see them again Right. And I actually have never talked about this, like what it's like to see a guy come back into the system. It's like it's crazy. Is it kind of crushing? Because that's kind of like, oh, wait, that might be me. It's like almost like somebody sneezes and you're like, don't give me Ebola or type. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you because, you know, everybody leaves. Either they leave hopeful that they're going to be able to be a better criminal or they leave hopeful that they'll never come back. And yet they come back and then you're like and shit and I'm still here like they're on a new thing and I'm still doing my old thing it's like it messes your head up 
it also think I messaged your head up to like experience, you know, like I spent a couple of uh, 4th of Julys, right? And I was like, oh, I can remember what I was doing last 4th of July and that like, it, 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 it starts to replace the memories that you had outside, you know? Like if you, if, 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 if you spend enough time, just imagine how you could easily replace all your Christmases with the Christmases you've done inside. Right? And then that becomes normal for you. Yeah. People start, like, thinking about count time. You know, like, for a while you're in prison, they're like, count time. Everybody has to go get counted, go back to your cell or go to your bunk. But at a certain time, you, like, can feel when it's about to be count time because you're so used to someone saying, like, okay, go over here at this time. Like, your internal clock becomes a prison clock. And I, I mean, I try to read books about the brain and how, like, you know, how our brain change. You know, uh, what do you call it? Like, our, you know, we can change. Like, we can change and try to be happy, right? Yeah, yeah I've been working on that one for forty nine years. But, um, but also, like, when it's almost like a Pavlov's dog thing. When yeah. you know the, when you know it's coming, yeah. you're, 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 uh, it, it becomes normalized, yeah. and that, and that scares me so much about me because the, the things that I've normalized in my life, and I go, wait a second. I'm self-sabotaging myself, and but you know, and, and it, it's I, I feel like everyone does it to an extent. But man, in that situation, you have no choice. It's done for you. But I, but I also feel like I write a lot about that in really both my books, but more so in survival. Is that what happens in the community? Is that this kind of what what starts off as a survival mechanism, you know, hustling or even pimping or selling dope or, you know, like cutting yourself off from emotions and your interpersonal relationships becomes a pathology. And the pathology, because so many people in the community are trying to cope with the same set of circumstances or similar circumstances, then it becomes something that's normalized in the community, right? So it went from like, man, we're just trying to survive to like, oh, this shit is how we survive, but it's actually hurting us to like, but everybody's doing it. So like, why don't we just keep on? Like, what's the... And then, the, the, and then also, like, the social climate isn't changing. So then, like, what is the impetus for you to actually change this set of circumstances that are, like, they're not really working, but they're, like, allowing you to have a certain standard of living? Yeah. I, it's, and it's intense, like, the collective consciousness. I sound like a hippie now. I'm not. I'm not. I promise. No, I am a little bit. <laughs> but, um, but, like, the collective conscious and how... how, how we affect affect each other just on so many levels. Like even when even when we talk, we're with. I love that's why I only do these in person. So we could be we could be eye to eye. I I could see I could see if you're getting mad at me and you're like, that's a stupid ass question. I go, oh wait, that's a stupid ass question. All right, cool. I'll, I'll, you know, yeah. It blows my mind how much we affect each other. I think I'm starting. I've only learned that recently in my life. I, I mean, I I I. Uh, I like that term of collective conscious. Um, it reminds oh, me. You're hippie too? Uh, well, uh, I think I understand it. Um, you know, one of the things with the, 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 the hippies, not to get like digress too much, is like I always thought that they, it was like um, people of a certain class who wanted to enjoy freedom and had the right to enjoy freedom. Like, I read Joan Didion, uh, the White Album. And uh, I can't remember the, maybe some dreamers of the golden dream. I don't know. Or 
I can't remember which essay it is, maybe Searching Towards Bethlehem or Slouching Towards Bethlehem, where she like goes to San Francisco in the 60s and she's like meeting all these kids that are like doing drugs and like they're like sleeping on the floor. And there's even like a little five-year-old kid that they have on like LSD or something in the essay. And um, but she's also saying like the kids are like running away from their homes and their parents are looking for them, but they have these resources that they can go back to. Right. And so to me, that's like you got to get you have to have a certain kind of uh, kind of fail safe in order to like do that kind of exploration. Right. So but but so to me, that's like the, the kind of that like hippies are like, yeah, free love and do all these things. But like what happened to the hippies after they were hippies? Right. Like they become like executives and shit. Right. So it was like they had that ability to do that. Like if you go out and ruin and not do it. If you go out and like try to claim that same kind of freedom as a person who is from a historically marginalized group, you likely might might not make it back to like the culture in the same way that hippies were able to like smoke a little weed when in the 60s and then be an executive in the 70s and 80s, right? Like what if you fuck up your life in the 60s like you might be gone forever. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. I didn't even think of that. My, re- my reference to hippie- hippies is I just have like, there, there's like a girl inside me that wants to do yoga and run barefoot and eat granola. <laughs> yeah. But like, who paying your bills while you're doing the yoga? That's the thing I want to know, you know? <laughs> oh, I, I do my yoga on YouTube videos. <laughs> exactly. But thank God for the internet. <laughs> um, we were talking about something else and I lost my thought. <laughs> Before we were talking about the hippies, yeah. Yeah, we were yeah, talking yeah. about collective oh, oh, the collective conscious. Yeah. yeah. So I was also thinking about how um, the that that the collective conscious in the community where I came from become it starts to work like so like I think in other cultures it feels like you can opt in, in which case you could also opt out. Yeah. But sometimes the collective conscious becomes like a hegemony where once you opt in like there ain't no getting out of it right so like you just become like more and more like um like oppressed really by like this kind of collective idea of what you can do what's right what's wrong how you should treat someone you know and that really reminds me of like there's an essay in oh really survival math this is the title essay where I talk about like this code of ethics that the men in my neighborhood had like if there were a certain set of kind of tacit rules that if they were violated there was a, 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 a stiff consequence to be paid for it right and like you might not have wanted to do that thing that was demanded of you in that situation, but because of this kind of collective consciousness about what is respect, you know, uh, when when are you being disrespected? It's like, if they do this, I must do this, you know? And it's not, it don't don't matter if you want to do it, it's like, well, either you have to do this or you're going to have to figure out a way to kind of distance yourself from, like, the group, the mind, the the kind of group think. Um, And that drove a lot of people that I know to do some pretty terrible things to each other. Yeah, I, it makes sense. Oh, it's. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish. Um, I wish. We, I wish I had time to sit back and go. I need to think about that for a while. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'll do it after when I go. Oh, damn it! I should have followed up with that. Question. Yeah, time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
but um, yeah, it's it's uh, what and and then so, what does it take? Well, for you, you said it was going to school that helped you to um, break the break the cycle, I guess. Uh, so, uh, survival math is uh, takes its name from 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 being confronted with uh, some violent people and then. Uh, being threatened, I guess, is maybe a better way to say it. And then kind of the decision-making, on-the-spot decision-making that I had to um, use to kind of avoid uh, an outcome of my unliking. And um, so I was reading a few weeks ago this uh, an essay by um, a woman named Maria Popova, Popova or Popova, um, and she wrote about, um, she was writing about uh, wisdom in the age of the internet. And she, uh, in, in the essay, she defined um, uh, information, knowledge, and wisdom. You know, information are like facts that we accept about the world. And then she said knowledge is um, discerning how those facts fit together. Uh, how did she say it? Like, um, yeah, determining how the facts how to put those facts together to like achieve some kind of goal. And then she said that wisdom had a moral component to it, that it wasn't just that you had the knowledge, right? It was that the not like you were using the knowledge to figure out like how to get us to like a, a better place in the world. Like that was that was the wisdom. And and so I, I've been thinking lately that the ultimate survival math is wisdom. Right? So it's like you have the information you can turn that information into knowledge, but ultimately you need wisdom in order to kind of avoid the situations which would demand survival math or to like forge. And then I also said that some people, I guess the kind of thing with the hippies too, is like some people are born with uh, a certain kind of quality of life, right? And that for them, it's never survival math. It's really prosperity math. It's like, we're already here. It's like, how do I do the math to get here, you know? And so I think that the, the ultimate survival math is wisdom, right? And so in the wisdom, not only keeps you safe, but allows you to achieve some kind of prosperity. So while people think, like, it's like, well, what do I need to do not to get killed? Like, yeah, that's a form of survival math, but ultimately what you want is the wisdom so you're never in that situation. And actually, so you set it up for you to thrive and for whomever else you, you know, or is in your kind of circle to thrive. I like that. Now I'm going to have to make sure I listen to this really hard to get that essay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's not in there. I was just talking about survival math as being, like, how you avoid... Being murdered, right? right? So that's, but that's like the baseline survival map. And I'm saying that, like, that's a certain kind of knowledge, right? right? Like, you know, here's the information. He's a, he has killed someone before. He shoots. He doesn't believe that I'm dangerous, so he he likely would shoot me too, right? That's the that's the knowledge, right? But then, like, the kind of moral reckoning is like, well, how do we get here? And like. What is he doing here? And like, how could I have avoided this situation in the first place? And like, ultimately, like, what is it going to take for us, neither of us, to think that this is a, an, a, an attack that we need to take? Right? That's like moral wisdom. Yeah. You know. And I feel like there. I feel like I wish the collective conscious this would have more. Right. 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 I mean, well, we see that that's just. Uh, and so, 
I was at home in Portland at Powell's Bookstore on Monday. And uh, I posed a question. The first question, of you know, the, the, we do the reading and the, the audience is supposed to ask you questions. But I posed the first question to the audience. And I said, I think the national um, identity of Oregon is of uh, um, citizens who are either progressive or they're liberal. Right, they're like the kind of the, the, the national reputation of us is like we're liberals, right, in right. Portland. I said, but also, I have been reading more and more, and also I have studied about this that Oregon has a a a pretty active history of white supremacy, right? right? And so I, I was like, how could it be that both the liberals and progressives and the white supremacists think Oregon is the bastion for them? Right. What is it that is connecting those two groups that makes this the place for both of them to set up shop? And I was like, the only thing that I can think of, or the greatest thing I can think of, is like being white trumps everything. It doesn't matter if you're the far right, le- le- I mean, the racist, or if you're like, you know, the most left-leaning liberal or progressive. It's like, but on, underneath all of that, I'm still white. Mm. And um, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I mean, that's. That's what I think of Portland <laughs> until I until I was reading uh, the parts of your book and going, well, holy shit! <laughs> Especially the essays um, from the, uh, that you talked about from like the 1800s and yeah. the the history of um, yeah. the history of Oregon and we want to think that oh yeah we're West Coast oh we're not involved in that and it's just like no that 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 shit's like right there 1800 is not that long ago. It's, yeah. it's, I was just in um, Brazil. Uh, over, I was in Rio for New Year's, and uh, I was t- taking a tour, and our, our tour guide was a, a darker-skinned um, uh, Brazilian. And so at a certain point, I started asking him about like the racial history of Brazil. And he said, which I didn't know at the time, but that Brazil was the last country in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery. They didn't do it until 1889. Yeah. And because... I don't know if you noticed, but Brazil was also the place where they had they got the most slaves during the transatlantic slave trade. So they got like 12 million slaves. 12 million slaves were brought to Brazil, right? So Brazil is dark because of the slave trade. So when they abolished it, they abolished slavery. They were so concerned that the country was going to turn basically black. They called it the Negro problem. That they imported Europeans to whiten the country. They called it like. Branquemento, I think. I might be mispronouncing it, right? So they were actually trying, it was like racial whitening of a country. And I thought to myself, wow, like if you think about the policies of the current administration and the way that they're treating like brown immigrants, and it to me it seems like the policies are kind of of the same kind of telos, right, to like whiten America. Um, but also it's like it's a historical playbook that they're running, right? Like this is 1889 when when Rio did when Brazil did this and now here we are in 2019 and the and our administration is doing the same thing. Yeah, we're not in a good place. I don't think. <laughs> no, we're not. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's just digression, digression. Okay. Oh, now we're in a downward spiral and uh, what do I do to make sense of the world? I I can't even fathom um, you know, people of color are people in situations where they they will be separated from their families because right. of migration policies, yeah, and it's just like you got to be kidding me. That they're being 
the children are being abused while they're in custody. Like I read a, uh, an article, I think a few weeks ago, that said they were actually like sexually abusing children. Yeah. You take them away from their family. You hold them without, you know, charging them with something. You separate them from their family, and then you abuse the kids. Like that's the I can't imagine anything more evil. You know, and you say that, and then in my homicidal like tendencies come up in my head, and I'm like, who do I got to kill to make this stop? <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I probably should be in more peace with myself and said, who could I help to bring at peace and come to get you? Yeah. Which I guess you're doing as a writer, putting the story out there to to to, to show. And well, uh, I think with even with that particular. Um, aspect of our kind of immigration policy. I have a, a friend, Valeria, um, who wrote a book called, oh my God, what is Valeria's book called? Uh, you know I'm keeping this all in here, so yes, when yes. Valeria listens, she's yes, going to be yes, very upset. Find this now. I'm going to find this. Let the record show that I am now looking for Valeria's title. Oh, oh I just had her. Uh, uh, there she goes. Louis Selly, Valeria Louis Selly, and her book is called Lost Children Archive. Okay. Yes, yes. It's about immigration. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Valeria, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you hear this. Uh, I, just, I, I don't know. There's no excuse for this, but uh, I found it. <laughs> Valeria, it's really hard when you have a microphone right, put thrown right in your face, and you're on the spot. So it's uh, it, it's a lot easier in general conversation than with yes, this thing. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for the past. Thank you for the the, the, the life preserve. <laughs> it ain't even that. I mean, I I've been fumbling my words since the beginning, and it's because I got you know I, I the mic's in my face too. So it's uh, what do you call it? It puts us in a um, it puts us in a very vulnerable posi- vulnerable position. And I think that's kind of fun. And then just let let it all run. Yeah. So then the audience goes, oh, wait, that doesn't sound like Terry Gross yeah. and neatly clean, you know? Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with Terry Gross, no. if you like her. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, one of the things that I think in this conversation reminds me of that is, like, to show your flaws. Some people think, like, if I show my flaws on the page, it's going to make me weaker. Like, yeah. people are going to have a certain kind of... Um, they're going to have a, a certain perspective of me that's like in which I have lost power. But I think if you, slow, if you show your flaws on the page with enough kind of, uh, I, no, I mean, not crap. If you show your flaws on the page, I actually think it gives you more strength because it takes away the ability for someone else to come and say, well, this takes their critique away yeah. in, a, in, in some instances. And then it also shows, like, I think you can't do this for real unless you're brave, right? And so that's, like, what you're writing about. But it's also, like, being able to withstand someone's critique of what you did. Like, if you feel good about what you wrote and and then someone comes and says, well, I don't get it or I didn't, then you're like, well, I have to be able to accept that. So I, I think... I got to a space, especially with kind of the, the, the last essay. One of the last essays is an essay called um, The Scale, in which I talk about my relationships to women. And there's a lot of very uh, damning material in it about, you know, the way that I've treated women. And uh, I didn't do it to, like, 
offset critique, but I did think that like if I'm going to kind of approach this as a subject, I, I need to be as, as, as honest as I possibly can be, and not just as honest, but also as critical as I possibly can be about myself. And it, it you know, and there was a lot of moments where I thought like, oh, maybe you shouldn't put this in because you know, like, women read books more books than anyone else, and like, this is not going to be helpful for you. But ultimately, I thought like, no, you have to be brave. And if you're if you're not brave and not brave to the point of like hubris but brave to the point of like I'm sharing this without a kind of varnish on it because I want someone else to see the humanity in it yeah. and, uh, and the humanity is the big thing and, and then if, if we if we can look at the humanity then we then we can have empathy for each other and it's like and then it then that can move us forward to because I yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm trying to be a better person. I, I hope other people are. And I know, yeah. I know I'm know, i doing it wrong. I know I know I'd take a right turn when I should take a left. I'm like, oh, I'm such a fucking idiot. But then I come back around and yeah. learn. But, yeah. I mean, I think it's so, I think it's, like, you, you were talking about um, working on the film and saying, like, wow, my, all my dreams came true. Yeah. And, like, what do I do now? Yeah. I mean, I think... I, people in power right so like if 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 we're 400 years old or or 400 years i since the first slaves came or not sorry the first enslaved africans came to this country in 1619 so 400 years ago um and so for me that's like my legacy in the country but across that all of those 400 years white men have been in command right and i think that that kind of legacy really really kind of I think it almost paralyzes them to get to the place where you can give yourself that kind of critique because it's like we've had this for 400 years like why would I give this up and I think you know if I look at like the kind of political educational like even look at the scandal of like the college students right like look at you know the kind of politics that are going on look at like I mean, who runs, like, who's the richest man in the world all the time, you know? Like, how is it that Jeff Bezos is worth, what, $150 billion? Like, all of these things to me say, like, this is a stronghold on power, and I don't really know a group that would give up a collective power, right? And that, so you, so I meant that to say, like, they also can't afford to be that critical of themselves, because if they are, then you know it's not fair game, you know? You're not playing fair ball, like... The, the, the scandal of getting into USC. First of all, whose could, kid couldn't get into, like, San Diego State with just their, you know, like, what were you doing that you couldn't get into San Diego State? You needed to cheat. But beside that, it's like, if you subject yourself to enough critique and you're fair-minded, right, like, you know you're not playing fair ball. And, like, who then and if you know you're not playing fair ball, then it's like, well, what do you do to kind of even up the playing field? And I just don't – I cannot imagine a world in which – Someone, a group of people who had most of the power would say, you know what, this isn't right. Like, we're going to figure out some kind of reparations. It's not happening. I, 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 I hate to agree, but I agree because um, that's another, that's another um, like, where they've all switched their mental or the, their brain DNA to a point where if one of them strays from that collective and one of them says, you know what, this is fucked up because of this. We need to change this. Let's start, let's start funneling our money to this situation. 
they're going to be like, that's, that's a great idea. And then they're going to be in a scandal like the next week. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it ain't going to be no college scandal. They're, they're, they're going to be like, oh, by the way, we got you, you know, three women and, uh, and we got a hotel room for you. And, that, you know, and that's on YouTube next week. Well, I mean, what's us homeboy that owns the uh, Patriots? Was <laughs> that what went down? I mean, I, I mean, there was memes in that. I don't know how kind of true if he was targeted or anything, but he was being, uh, I mean, I guess basically an activist for there was a rapper who got into trouble. And uh, he came to his aid, and also the guy who owns the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. Really? Uh-huh. And then I think it was two weeks ago where he got caught with uh, some sex workers. And I, I'm not, I don't want to be diminished this because I, I, I feel like I didn't read that deeply about it, but someone told me that some of them were underage. I do not know if that was the case. If that's the case, it's, you know, I, I could not condone that. But if the women were of age, I'm like... Someone hiring a sex worker is not really a scandal. And for a billionaire, it's like, why would you, why would that be headline news, you know? Yeah. Well, like, clearly, he didn't just start doing this, like, three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. So, like, why, then you ask yourself, like, why now would he be scandalized by this particular incident? Right. It'd be like if he was doing four lines of blow and then goes, oh, I just started that yesterday. <laughs> Exactly. Never happened. Never happened. Yeah. Um, oh, it's yeah. It's. I mean, you know, talking to you makes me happy and depressed all at once. I. I don't know. I. I this. This. This world just confuses me. And yeah. I, I, how. How do we do better? I mean, I. I guess that, that's the question I'll pose to you. If you don't have the answer, that's great because I don't have the answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know how we do better, but I'll tell you, I have a friend. Um, named Dee Watkins. I do have the title of his book. It's coming out next month. It is called We Speak for Ourselves. And he says that often he's in these kind of uh, liberal spaces and, and well-meaning people come up to him and say, like, I want to help. How can I help? And he says, um, and the reason why I'm repeating this is because I, I, I agree with him, is that uh, what he tells them is, like, what's your skill? And then he says, well, if you have a skill, then you need to share it with someone who doesn't have that skill. So he, he thinks that the best that we can do, not the best that we can do, but one of the kind of most um, efficacious thing we can do is, like, actually share our skill set with someone. So you work in banking, like, teach someone about banking. Like, you run a podcast, like, go t get a youngster and teach him how to, you know, start his own podcast. And I think that that is a start, right, that, like, we're actually empowering people to enter into fields and careers that they wouldn't ordinarily have access to. Um, and it also, I think, what he didn't say is, I think that it demands your empathy and compassion because to teach someone who doesn't already know about it, right? Like you gotta have a certain amount of patience, right? Like you gotta be committed to it because not like they gonna get it on the first time. Like you gotta be open to questions. Right, it's gonna also force you to be sharper about what you do because now you have to explain it to people. Like I find that all the time in my classroom. So, so skill sharing does all of these other things that kind of forces you to look at your humanity, right? And then also the the other person's. So there's my kind of. I mean, it's not a simple answer, but like that's a kind of. I think it's an answer that actually can be done, right? Like you can actually go find someone who does not know how to do a blog and say like, I am interested. I'm gonna teach you how to do this. Yeah.
That's great. And um, and that kind of brings in mentors, and you brought that up earlier when we were talking about your mentors. Um, who were some of your mentors that kind of pushed you in the, you know, just right when you needed it? And it's so weird when we look back at the little nudges we got. We didn't know at the time that it was a big nudge. Uh, so there are a few, and I, I don't know if any of them, or only a couple of them would really be considered mentors, but these are people who are were like watershed moments. The first one was a woman named Diana Abu-Jabber, writer, who used to, uh, I guess she might have been running the, the Portland State University MFA program, or MA program when I applied, and uh, who uh, let me in the program without even having a full manuscript su- submitted. I gave her, like, I think I needed 20 pages. I gave her 10. I was like, I can get you the other 10. And then I called back and said, I got them. She's like, don't worry, Mitch, you're in. So that was, that was what allowed me to go to graduate school, which was really a moment that, like, picked me up and kind of set me on the path to this. The other one was um, meeting a guy named John Edgar Weidman, another very um, acclaimed uh, writer. Um, when I was in at NYU, and uh, he had, a, like, a... I felt like he had a similar background to me. His, his, his family, he had several family members who were incarcerated. He was a MacArthur winner. He was a second Rhodes Scholar. Uh, so, so Alain Locke, like maybe 1932, was the first black Rhodes Scholar. And then there wasn't another one until the 1960s, so 30 years. And John Edgar Wyman was a second. And he just retired like five years ago as a distinguished professor at Brown. Um, so him kind of taking an interest in me and like giving me advice. He didn't necessarily like read my work and but he like was very helpful and like pointing me in the right direction in terms of my career. And then in 2009, I studied with Gordon Lish, who was Raymond Carver's uh, editor, and also Amy Hempel and Barry Hanna and Susan Sontag, a lot of people. And uh, he is the one that like actually mentored me. So like he would. Uh, we would go over my, my stories like sentence for sentence and like ask me, you know, why did I write this and push on this. And then he would like leave me messages late at night on my phone if I didn't answer. Like, you can be great, Mitch. Like, stick with me and like, you're going to be great. And uh, like all that kind of encouragement. He would send me postcards like, Mitch, you're the one. Like, you know, so I still have all of those. Yeah. So so to me, that was the like the and that was also about the point. He also got me my first agent which led led to my first book deal. So he was, if I have a mentor, that was the mentor. And you know, it's, it's, I guess it's interesting that like, we haven't talked for a very long time. He kind of cut me off, but so our mentorship lasted about two years. But it was like a really kind of potent two years. And then it was like, like I'm gonna cut you loose and you kind of got to make it on your own. But he was the one that I like, I can point to and say he definitely took an interest in like seeing me, not just, like become another writer, but he was like, Mitch, you could be great. And I had never really had anyone tell me that I could be great. I heard people say like, you're good at this, you know, keep practicing. But like for someone who has already produced greatness to say, cause it would've been different if it was like writer Joe Smoe's like, oh Mitch, I think you can be great. Like I might not necessarily believe him, but for somebody who I thought was like, you know, Jesus with an editing pen, yeah. that meant the world to me. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Hey, I, so I have one more question to ask you, and it's about the, the, the letter to your daughter at the end of the book. And um, it's, it's just, it was beautiful. That, 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 that's how you ended the book. And the emotion, I, I, I don't have kids, but if I had kids, like, I can 
just the way you want to protect them and move them. And I, what was the inspiration to put that in the book? And um, and what, what's your daughter's thoughts on the book? Well, she hasn't read it. Okay. Um, I oh, she hasn't read the letter either. She hasn't read the letter. I didn't. I didn't want to share it with her before it was published. Okay. Um, I actually don't really share my work with any of my family that I'm writing about because I don't want them to kind of edit it. Right. So I want to. I want to be honest in what I want to give to them. Which I did let her mother read it though because I didn't want something to be like harmful to my daughter. So she was. A, Maybe the only person that I let read something that was about, you know, someone in the book. But, but, but ultimately, I wanted to give my daughter a gift. Um, she'll be, she's turning 18 this year. She's going off to college. She's actually going to Pepperdine. Uh, so she'll be here. And um, I thought, you know, I could buy her something. But if I gave her this moment, this space in the book, like this would be the gift that she could return to. And that this was like to me more valuable than anything that I could buy her. So that was one thing that I wanted to do. And then I also wanted to give her some kind of insight into some of my own failings and how I saw them as a father. Um, so I was very conscious of that. And then I thought, you know, I spent a lot of time writing about men in my family and the, and the relationships between men. And I thought this was a this was a way also to kind of balance that um and uh and yeah i was just you know i I was also really trying to kind of re i I wanted to relive the memory of her being born Uh, that was really 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 special to me and i um and and i had never told her the story so i wanted that was something else that like oh i could share this share this with you yeah so i mean i think that for, for all of those reasons it felt like the best way to begin but it also felt that way because it's recursive. Um, I like I like endings that connect to the openings, and so the opening is a letter to like the past, right? So this guy Marcus Lopez was the first man to uh, on record to step foot on what became Oregon, and so I'm writing to him about all of these things that have transpired in this place since he was killed there, and so my letter to my daughter is really about a letter to the future, right? Like I'm writing for her to kind of evolve and prosper in the in the future mitchell thank you so much man this has been great thank you thank you for having me that was mitchell s jackson his book survival math notes on an all-american family is out now it's fantastic Buy it, read it, call me. Let's geek out on the craft of amazing storytelling. And next week on the show, we have Alan McDonnell. He's the author of Punk Elegies, Prisoner of X, 20 Years in the Hole at Hustler Magazine, and Now That I Am Gone, A Memoir Beyond Recall. Have a great week, and I'll be in your ear next Wednesday.